Blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, pour out your spirit upon this, your word, and make it be for us the word of life that we might be people of life. And now, O oh God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O oh God, our Redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. My, grand, my great-grandparents came to Oklahoma quite late. The land runs, the Oklahoma Territory had been opened up in 1889, and uh, there were a number of different land runs across Oklahoma, and so uh, the, the, by, by the time my great-grandparents came to Oklahoma, Oklahoma had been opened up for about 10 years. My, grand, my great-grandparents came in 18, uh, 1899. My grandmother was two years old. Her family came. My, my, my paternal grandmother and my paternal grandfather, uh, they, they came with their families, respective families, in 1899. My grandfather was nine years old at the time, and my grandmother was two years old at the time. My grandmother's um, family, they settled, and, and my grandfather's family, they both settled in Custer County, Oklahoma. It's far, far western Oklahoma. Again, most of the, the good land had been taken by then. Uh, here in central Oklahoma, the, uh, the land that was um, lush and green and was able to raise crops had already been taken. But my grandmother's family, they had a family member who, who worked in the claims office. And so this family member had heard about a quarter, or uh, for those of you non-farmers, that's 160 acres. They had heard about 160 acres that had not yet had a claim staked on it. And so... Uh, they selected the best that they could find, and it was this uh, 160 acres in Custer County, Oklahoma. Um, I grew up uh, farming that with my family. My, my dad uh, would farm that for my grandparents. It's still in the family, by the way. My aunt, uh, one of my aunts who is now in her mid-90s, she still owns it, and her kids will take ownership of that one day. Um, but I was, I was in that area. I've spent quite a bit of time in that area. We have some property uh, that our family owns just five or six miles down the road. And so uh, a few months ago, I went back and saw, saw the old homestead house. The homestead house is actually still there. It's fallen down. All of the wood is still there. I have, now I have a, a glass jar sitting, in my, sitting on, my, um, uh, on my on my desk here at the office, here at the church office, have my pencils in it. It looks like a regular old glass jar, but it was a glass jar that I'd found there at the old homestead. I grew up, I grew up um, going to that homestead a lot. In fact, one of the, one of the times that stands out, I, I had just started learning how to drive the tractor. I was 11 years old, and I was there with my next older brother. He was uh, almost 17 years old at the time. And we had, it, it was about 25 miles away from where my parents lived, and so we would have to drive the tractor all the way down there, which took multiple hours uh, to be able to do that, and then we would follow in the pickup. And so uh, my brother and I were down there, and when you went down to my grandmother's farm, you stayed all day long. And so my brother and I, we were there to stay all day long. My mom had, had packed not only a lunch, but also supper, bologna sandwiches for both, um, old, uh, old um, 
uh, uh, potato chips and, and some, some uh, big box store cola is what it was for the day. But this particular day, it was incredibly, incredibly hot. It was one of those summer days. You know the kind of days that I'm talking about. It was one of those summer days where the wind was blowing 35 miles an hour, but the wind, the hot wind, made you even hotter than it would have been had the wind not been blowing. And so as my brother was, uh, was plowing down on that, on that beautiful bottom on that place, I was sitting in the pickup, and we would, we would trade off. Uh, one of us would plow for about four hours while the other did our best to cool off when we were trying to find a tree or sitting in the pickup trying some way to keep cool. Well, this day we forgot to bring water. We, did, we didn't have it. We had, it. we had an empty jug, but we, it wasn't full of water. Well, the thing that my grandmother in particular hated about her home place is that the water on that home place was really hard. It was full of jip. In fact, the, the, the ground, when you plowed the ground, you would have to be very, very careful because you would run over these large gypsum rocks and you would, you would tear apart your plow. You had to be very, very careful. The entire place, even today, you can go there today and, and find these gyp hills. Uh, well, that gyp, that gypsum, as, as the water leaches through it, the water picks up some of that gypsum and it makes the water very, very hard. Well, as an 11-year-old boy, I didn't know much about gyp water, but I was famished. I was absolutely parched. I went over to the windmill, being the young 11-year-old boy that I was, and I saw this fresh water pumping out of the windmill. And so I put that empty jug, that, 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 that jug, and I, I put it under the water, and, and out came this beautiful, clean, fresh cold water. Oh, I was so excited to have a swig of that water. In fact, it was more than just one swig. I just couldn't get enough of it. Now, I don't know if you all have ever drunk gyp water. Has anyone ever had a taste of gyp water? Do you know what the effects of gyp water are on the human system that are not, that is not familiar uh, with gyp water? Well, it did a number on my system. Within about 30 minutes, I was doubled over in pain. I won't go into the gory details of all of the after effects for the rest of that day, but it was not, it was not a good day for 11-year-old Leslie Broadbent. I say that. I say all of that because I remember what it was to be thirsty that day. I, I, I remember what it was to be thirsty that day. Many of us, many of us, it's been years and years since we really were really, really thirsty. I mean, our, our tongues may be dry every once in a while and our, and our stomachs may grumble just a little bit. But if you're like me, during this pandemic, I have been eating and drinking even before I was hungry and thirsty. And that explains the 10 pounds that I've put on during this pandemic. But the people to whom Jesus was speaking knew hunger, as do so many in our world, as do so many in our world today. The vast majority in Jesus' day were never too far from starvation. Subsistent living in the arid climate of the first century was absolutely common. No wonder that the Old Testament law 
commanded. It was a law that employers must pay their employees at the end of every day. For you see, had they had to wait until the end of the week or even end of the month, they would not have had enough in that subsistent culture. As for thirst, well, in that land, a, a cistern or a well was a matter of life and death. Oh, no doubt, the listeners of this beatitude in Jesus' day, they knew what hunger and thirst was all about. But I suspect, I suspect that we also know what hunger and thirst is all about, but mostly for matters, for matters social or emotional or sexual or intellectual. In my experience, the pandemic has heightened those hungers and thirsts. I'm not sure about you, but I have been absolutely bored out of my mind for the last 12 months. Whenever I go home from work, well, we can't go to a restaurant, and we can't go to ball games, and we can't go to a friend's house, and we can't do this, and we can't do that. And so we just, especially in the first few months, you remember? Do you remember? They were even encouraging you just simply to stay inside, not even to walk around your neighborhoods. We were on complete and total lockdown. I was bored out of my mind. We've been distanced from one another. I have seen a rise in loneliness and depression. And so those appetites that we have, those hungers and thirsts that we innately have, have been heightened during this pandemic. But for what we are hungry and thirsty makes a difference. For what we are hungry and thirsty makes a difference. No doubt, being hungry and thirsty for food is one thing, but being hungry and thirsty for righteousness is a far different thing. Today we are continuing our sermon series, dealing with and examining these beatitudes. We have been, we have been seeing, we have already seen how we are, we are, we have been blessed. Those who are poor in spirit, meaning those who recognize they are broken. We are broken and alone. We have nothing to bring to our Lord. We are poor in spirit. Those who are mourning, those who are mourning over their sinfulness, they are, they are blessed. Those who are meek, not those who are weak, not those who are submissive at all times, but those who have their power under control. You remember last week, like a bridled horse, that's what meekness is. Those are the ones who are blessed. And Jesus here today, again, remember that these are simply statements about what the kingdom of God is like. These are not necessarily ethical teachings. Now, I want you to be meek, Jesus says. No, this is simply a matter of fact. In the kingdom of God, the meek, the meek are blessed. In the kingdom of God, the poor, are, the poor in spirit are blessed. It's not the religious elite. It's not the rich. It's not the powerful. It is, these are the people who are blessed in the kingdom of God. And in our passage today, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel differ when it comes to this Sermon on the Mount. And even these Beatitudes, Luke's gospel leaves it at this. Those who are hungry and thirst, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty, for they shall be filled or they shall be satisfied. 
But again, for what we are hungry and thirsty makes a huge difference. I believe that Matthew is clarifying. It, I think it probably, I believe that it's probably closer to um, what Jesus was intending, if not his exact words indeed. Blessed are the hungry and thirsty for righteousness. For righteousness. What made this beatitude so astounding to Jesus' listeners? Is that Jesus didn't say, blessed are the righteous. I would have thought, well, the Pharisees would have thought that that's what Jesus would have taught. For you see, that's what they taught. Blessed are the righteousness. If you want to be blessed by God, well, then you better be good. God blesses the good. That's the, uh, that's the message of the Pharisees and the religious elite of Jesus' day. Bl God blesses those who are good. The opposite is also true. God curses those who are bad. But Jesus came and began to teach something different. Again, the Pharisees and the religious elite said, if you want to be blessed by God, you want to succeed, well, then you obey the rules. All 613 of the Old Testament rules and the thousands in the Talmud. But Jesus did not say, blessed are the righteous, for had he done so, none of us ever would have had the chance to be blessed. Instead, Jesus blessed those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. In doing so, in blessing those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, Jesus takes the emphasis from the law and puts it upon the affections of our heart. Did you get that? I think that's important. Jesus did not bless the righteous, but instead he blessed those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. If we are striving only after righteousness, if we are striving, or if, 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 if Jesus only blesses those who are righteous, it makes us think that if we just act right, if we just obey the rules, then we've arrived. But Jesus is not saying that. He's talking about the affairs of our heart. He's talking about our own affections of the heart. It, and that is the root of our issues, and I believe even of salvation itself. The great 20th century preacher Ralph Sockman once said, We must have more than enough to live on. We must have enough to live for. Righteousness. Holiness is what we are called to live for. Life must be more than about filling our stomachs with food and drink or filling our social media feeds with likes and retweets. Life must be more than about simply winning the battle with a bad temper or refraining from, from satisfying our unquenchable sexual appetites Righteousness is the high calling of every single follower of Jesus Christ. Righteousness is at the very heart of life itself. Dr. Ellsworth Callas, in his book entitled Beatitudes from the Backside, wrote, wrote this. He said, Always remember this, that the hunger for righteousness is hunger at the heart of life. 
Remember St. Augustine's classic cry, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. This is hunger at the heart of life. He continues, This is not its periphery, not its transient interests, but at the place where the issues and meaning of life are fully spelled out. You see the point, don't you? Dr. Callis asks, Most of our hungers seem to concentrate on the marginal and superficial. As a result, listen to this. This is genius. As a result, when such hungers are met, we are still yet left unsatisfied. But the hunger for righteousness is at the very heart of our being. Indeed, at the very heart of who we are and of creation itself. Thus, we are dealing with a matter worthy of our God-given humanity. Thus, we find fulfillment in the search itself. Righteousness. Holiness. Real transformation of our lives. Holy love. Is what John Wesley called the great depositum of Methodism. In his last months of his life, Wesley called this idea that we can have power over the over the uh, we can have victory over the power of sin. He called that the great the grand depositum of Methodism, that for which we were chiefly raised up. Meaning this. The reason that God put us Methodists here on the earth, the reason that God raised up the Methodist was this preaching of holiness and righteousness. It's not enough. It's not enough to get someone down at the altar and accept Jesus as their Savior. He must be their Lord as well. It's not enough. Just to be forgiven from the power of sin. Or to be forgiven for the consequences of sin. That's the first half of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came into the world. He suffered for us. He died for us. And He has offered us forgiveness for the consequences of sin. But the second half of the gospel is just as glorious. And it's what we Methodists bring to Christianity. To the greater church. Not only are we forgiven for the consequences of sin, but we have been given the power over sin itself. And it's not just some sort of, well, you know, we can kind of resist sometimes. No, Wesley believed that we are saved to the uttermost. The uttermost. When we give our lives so much so to God... God gives us victory over the power of sin. We don't have to sin any longer. He had this concept called entire sanctification. I think it's incredibly, incredibly biblical. Further on in chapter 5, Jesus says this, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, we don't like to listen to those kinds of things. Oh, I'm just a sinner. That's all I'm ever going to be. No. No, not at all. We will always, 
always stand in need of forgiveness. We will always stand in need of a Savior. But I believe just as God is powerful enough to create the universe, God is powerful enough to redeem the universe, to redeem our lives, to remake even me. Even me. This begins with hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I asked the question this past week. Do you want righteousness today? Do you really, do you really want to be made holy? Do you really want to be made clean? What sin? What sin do you love more than you love righteousness or even God himself? Scriptures teach us that nothing should take the place of God as the center of our lives. We are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Lord Jesus Christ wants to make you holy. It's His great desire in your life. And I have found when we begin with confession, when we begin with seeking after righteousness, God begins to so work in our lives that things just simply begin to melt away. The desires that we once had just begin to melt away. There are other sins in our lives that God will, God will lop off. He will cut them off. And when we come before Him, yearning, desiring, and begging, God, make me holy, He will. No doubt in my mind he will. This is the great depositum of Methodism. This is why God has raised us up. This is why you're here and why I'm here. So that we can proclaim to the world that, you know, I used to have a sinful life. And sin riddled my life. And it was as if I could do nothing but sin. But God has changed me. I couldn't will myself to be better, but God has changed me and freed me from those sins and called me to righteousness. Come, experiencing, experiencing that power of the Holy Spirit to give you victory even over sin itself. Would you bow with me? God, we thank you for your incredible grace, your incredible transforming love that we have found in Jesus Christ. Lord, right now, we confess to you that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Right now, in the quietness of our hearts, we confess to you our sins. Especially confess to you those sins that we love more than we love righteousness. Lord, help us even more than we love you.
Lord, for those things that rival, that rival you for the affections of our heart. Lord, give us victory over them. No longer do we want to be selfish. No longer do we want to be sinful. No longer, no longer do we want to love things more than we love you. Lord, remold us, remake us into your image, holy and righteous. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.